Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. The Crisis Next Door. A weekly report on the biggest conflicts around the world. With host Jason Brooks. Thanks for listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks. The thought of the U.S. going to war with China or Russia is largely inconceivable due to the potential for nuclear annihilation. And while political and military leaders on all sides likely grasp that consequence, there are flashpoints around the world that could change the ability of all sides to restrain themselves from a devastating conflict. That's the focus of a new book from Michael O'Hanlon, Senior Fellow and Director of Research and Foreign Policy at the Brookings Institution. The Senkaku Paradox, Risking Great Power War Over Limited Stakes. Michael, thank you for joining The Crisis Next Door. Jason, thanks for having me. A quick overview of the Senkaku paradox finds you investigating potential scenarios involving the U.S. with China and Russia and disputes over territory that may not seem all that important to most people, but because of formal security treaties with its allies, compels the U.S. into action. First off, before getting into the individual scenarios, please explain the point you're getting at here. Right. Well, the Senkaku Islands are the easiest way to make the point because, and that's why I use them as the, you know, poster child for the title and the cover, because these are uninhabited islands. They are genuinely unimportant. No one wants to do anything on them. There are fishing grounds around them, but based on the way other you know kinds of territories affect claims to the fishing grounds, it's not even clear that the Senkaku Island ownership would matter for determining access to fishing grounds. So they are genuinely unimportant, except that they are covered by the U.S.-Japan Security Treaty because Japan technically administers those islands, which means that it has, as we recognize, uh, enough sovereign control, even though nothing ever happens on the islands, that we feel bound to honor our broader commitment to Japan's security as codified in the U.S.-Japan uh, Mutual Security Treaty. So you could imagine a situation where China, which also claims these islands and calls them the Diaoyu Islands and feels that it has historical claims that basically imperial Japan of the late 19th century you know, uh, overrode, and then the United States was not wise enough in Beijing's eyes to correct the situation after World War II. So these islands remain historically contentious. China still thinks it should own them. And therefore, one day it may just show up and put troops ashore. And what do you do? What do you do in that situation? Uh, nobody would have been hurt in this because no one lives there to begin with. Only person who could have been hurt would have been a Chinese soldier if there's an accident while he comes ashore. And yet to tolerate that blatant grab of land would then mean that people would ask questions, well, what comes next? Is the United States going to defend Okinawa? Is it going to defend Japanese maritime claims in areas that are more important? And in other words, you can't just ignore this aggression and let China get away with it and then send China a message that in general aggression may be tolerated. So that's why I call it a paradox or a dilemma. You know, if, if you think of either option, massive response or ignoring the provocation, they're equally unacceptable for different reasons. 
And so that's why I spend a lot of time in the book trying to figure out how to respond to that kind of a scenario with either China or Russia in the other half of the world, so to speak. Knowing that the U.S. and Japan have a security treaty in place, what would compel China to take these largely useless islands? Well, hopefully that will be enough deterrent because they haven't taken them. They've monkeyed around. They've sent a lot of ships and airplanes in their waters close by, and they've tried to uh, cause Tokyo a bit of angst about the islands and the ownership. But on balance, uh, they seem to have been deterred to not think it's worth it yet, which is maybe the number one argument against writing the book I just completed, because I may be trying to solve a problem that doesn't really exist. On the other hand, we know the Chinese contest the ownership of these islands, and the Chinese have to wonder, would the Americans really care enough to come fight for them? And so what I want to do is create some response options that don't involve firing the first shot against China in this kind of a scenario, and yet would be punitive enough that China would find the threat of that kind of an American response credible and not be inclined in the first place. In other words, if the chance of war over one of these islands today is 10 percent, I want to bring it down to 1 percent. I'm not comfortable with the chances of war remaining at 10 percent, even if that's pretty low. It's not low enough when you're talking about nuclear armed superpowers. You point out that General Whistler, former commander of the Marine Expeditionary Force in Japan, once said that bombing the islands might be the preferred military tactic in responding to a seizure by Chinese troops. Did he believe that Beijing would be okay with casualties? Is that the kind of military frame of mind that you find when considering the Senkaku Islands or other situations like this around the world? Yeah, I'm glad you brought up General Whistler. He's actually a good friend of mine. He was at Brookings for a year, 20 years ago, as a lieutenant colonel. And we've been in touch in recent years, and he's going to join me for a public event on the book in a few weeks, uh, once I do my initial book launch with Rachel Martin of NPR in two weeks. And General Whistler said, I believe, what he had to say, given the job he held at the time. He was the top Marine in the Asia Pacific, and he could not invite any kind of doubt or any kind of Chinese opportunism by suggesting any kind of weakening in the American resoluteness about how to address a possible aggression or provocation. In other words, for deterrence sake, it was important that the Chinese still think we might very well respond. So I don't disagree with General Whistler's comment as a reigning U.S. military officer over the time, but I also think the Chinese might not find that credible. Are we really going to start a, a, a war against a nuclear-armed great power over a barren rock? So they may wonder and maybe start to think they could get away with it, especially, let's say, if someone like President Trump in the White House, who's known not to value alliances as much as certain other American presidents, maybe gets into a row in the future with the Japanese, let's say, hypothetically, or some other American president with an uncertain commitment to the U.S.-Japan treaty winds up in the White House, would the Chinese see that as a opportunity? And uh, so I really was worried about how you would handle that kind of a scenario. And I thought that if deterrence did fail, you would want to do things besides start shooting at Chinese troops. Uh, so I would do things like make sure the other seven islands are no longer defenseless. So I would beef up our defenses with the Japanese on those islands. And then I would apply a targeted set of economic measures, you know, sort of like what President Trump's doing now, but over a longer period with a more strategic purpose of trying to weaken certain sectors of the Chinese economy that are particularly relevant to national security. And I would try to make sure that 
the pain associated with our economic warfare strategy would be far in excess of the value of the islands to China. And so it's that kind of a strategy combining forward military positioning without shooting and then economic warfare at a fairly carefully calibrated level that I think would be a more credible response. So nothing wrong with General Whistler's comment for an official U.S. military view. But by the same token, if there are too many repetitions of that kind of a view, it's not going to be good for U.S.-China relations. And moreover, I think deterrence could fail if that's the only idea that's out there for the reasons that I just mentioned. I want to get more into the asymmetric defense in just a moment. Uh, First off, I wanted to gauge your thought on whether you think Beijing would consider a limited use of force on the belief that Japan and the U.S. wouldn't respond to that. Well, I think by definition, almost any seizure of a Senkaku Island or two would be limited because there's nothing there to oppose any kind of such a seizure. These are small islands. No one lives on them. There are no troops based on them. There's no military equipment based on them. There are various surveillance mechanisms in the broader region, Japanese ships and aircraft, but the actual quote-unquote seizure of the islands would just mean putting enough people ashore that they could not be easily pushed off. And so by definition, this scenario is one of very limited effort. And that's one more reason why I worry that it could happen. In fact, you could even imagine the Chinese doing it and not even announcing it as a military aggression, announcing it as, uh, you know, a ship got caught in a storm and the sailors or the Chinese uh, Marines came onto the Senkaku Island either to save themselves or to save this fishing boat that notionally was otherwise going to run aground, you know, and then they just stay a while. And then they decide not to leave and they keep you know, giving double talk about when they're leaving. And and then after a few months, they decide to say, you know what, we don't think we have to leave at all because, as we've been pointing out for years, these are Chinese territory. It's that kind of a scenario, which never actually has to arise to the level of a major military commitment and which is always reversible if they decide that they see the United States or Japan coming at them harder than they thought. Uh, and the same kind of thing with Russia. Uh, with the Russia cases that I'm most interested in, there'd be a little bit more danger or difficulty of executing the initial aggression because I'm postulating here that Russia would seize not an entire Baltic nation like Estonia or Latvia, but just one or two small towns right over the border where they could say we're protecting Russian speakers, you know, because the Russian speakers are about 25% of the population of either Estonia or Latvia. Uh, Those are NATO member states since 2004. They are also former Soviet republics until they got their freedom, which means that The Russians really feel that uh, bringing them into NATO was an inappropriate action on our part. But rather than try to take them back entirely and risk World War III, why not send in some of those same little green men who took Crimea back in 2014 and did so bloodlessly? And you fabricate some kind of a pretext. You know, you say that, again, the Russian speakers in Estonia there over the border were somehow imperiled. And and you just say you're putting in these little green men long enough to quell the disturbance. But then they happen to stay a while. It's that kind of a scenario that I worry about with Russia. Uh, And the goal that Moscow might have is not so much that they care about those Russian speakers or about that one town. They would just, I think, welcome the opportunity to throw NATO into a crisis because a lot of NATO nations would not want a military response after such a slight provocation, but others might. And this could lead to the very kind of debate inside of NATO that Moscow could particularly enjoy and see as a potential path to making NATO look uh, irrelevant or like a paper tiger. So those are the kinds of concerns. In either case, it's a very limited action 
that begins the whole thing and probably never has to be escalated very much uh, unless, of course, we escalate. You're listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks, and I'm speaking with Michael O'Hanlon, Brookings Institution Senior Fellow and author of The Sinkako Paradox. Military planners have been working over a potential invasion from Russia into Eastern and Central Europe for many decades now. Do you think it would be at all possible to keep that conflict from going nuclear? Is that the main reason why it has not happened to this point? Well, you're certainly rolling the nuclear dice with any war between Russia and NATO. I think that's correct. And therefore, if we have relatively cautious leaders in all the different capitals, they're not going to want to play that kind of a game. As much as I don't respect, admire, or uh, approve of Vladimir Putin, I do not consider him reckless. And so I think it's pretty unlikely that he would seize an entire Baltic state and create the very dangers that you mention. It's also relatively unlikely that he he would even do what I'm writing about in my book, because even that does raise the possibility as you point out, of escalation. So my worry here is, again, taking a scenario that may be 5 or 10% likely today down to just 1% or less likelihood. But I'm also worried about the president after Putin, who may be equally angry with the Western world, equally interested in reasserting Russian prerogatives as he, as he sees them historically, but uh, less careful and less smart about anticipating what the NATO or American response could be. So that's, again, the kind of scenario that made me feel motivated to write the book. And you propose an asymmetric defense for these limited responses. Now, we're constantly hearing more about asymmetric warfare and dealing with groups like the Islamic State and al-Shabaab. What would it mean in dealing with a major power like China or Russia? Well, I think that, you know, limited conflict scenarios, gray area scenarios, these sorts of things, uh, or asymmetric warfare... Uh, in, in my mind, it's not just fighting with different tactics, but it's also fighting in a different location and maybe even fighting without the instruments of warfare. So when I talk about asymmetric response, I'm thinking about economic response as the essence of our offensive operation. And this is not a strictly defensive operation because the goal would be to inflict enough pain on Russia or China that they would relent or better yet, not carry out the aggression in the first place, knowing what we could do to them. So I don't see that as defensive or irresolute in any way. I see it as pretty assertive. And I think that's an important point uh, to drum home because some people are going to say, oh, Hanlon's idea is a little too meek and it invites aggression for that reason. But I think the combination of putting military forces in a position to prevent any further aggression by China or Russia, and then really hitting them with the hammer of a long-lasting economic warfare strategy that goes beyond the sort of tokenism with sanctions that we sometimes apply to certain countries. That's a pretty powerful approach. But the last piece, if we got into a somewhat more serious scenario, let's say the Chinese start to blockade Taiwan, the country or the the non-country that we're friends with, but we don't recognize it as a nation state any longer. We don't have a formal alliance with it, but we do value uh, its autonomy, its democracy, and we value it as a friend. And if it were attacked, we would have a strong incentive to try to help it. So if there were, let's say, a Chinese blockade of Taiwan, I might counter with an asymmetric response that also involved trying to deny China access to Persian Gulf oil by trying to impede the movement of a lot of the oil tankers coming out of the Persian Gulf and headed for China. So that would be another way of thinking about an asymmetric response, geographically distinct 
from the theater of the original aggression. How much does cyber warfare play into that asymmetric response? Yes. For one thing, we'd have to worry that the Chinese or Russians would use cyber attacks against us. And that's part of why I don't want to escalate to an all-out shooting war. I'm afraid of nuclear deterrence or nuclear deterrence failing, but I'm also afraid of cyber attacks. And so I want to stay out of that realm as long as we can. But yes, we could certainly use cyber attacks against them as well. Uh, Just I'm hesitant to want to so-called fire the first shot in cyberspace uh, because, again, I think our vulnerabilities are greater than Russia's and perhaps China's. Our our capabilities to go on the offensive may be better as well, but we don't have quite as strong of a defense. So I prefer to play to our strengths, and I think our strengths involve the U.S. Navy and projecting power around the world and therefore being able to shut down the movement of goods on the oceans in a way that could really squeeze China's economy. So that's the number one asymmetric military opportunity that I see for the United States and its allies. Could the U.S. learn something from Russia and China, given their own asymmetric moves in their own spheres of influence? Yeah, no doubt. I mean, these are countries that are willing to play economic hardball with countries they believe are not fair to them, that disrespect them, uh, that don't, you know, don't honor Russian wishes or prerogatives. And so the whole spirit of this thinking is to say, you know, we have this whole toolkit of incredibly powerful economic responses. And we've used it pretty well against North Korea and Iran in the past, but we haven't really thought of it as an instrument of warfare in conflict scenarios where, you know, we haven't been directly attacked in a major lethal way on the homeland of ourselves or any major U.S. allies. But so therefore, it's sort of a low-grade war, dangerous enough that it requires some clear, strong response but perhaps not a situation where you want to escalate or start, you know, seeing blood spilled on both sides. And therefore, uh, these, you know, largely economic strategies really play to our strengths and make sense for the scenarios. You mentioned using the U.S. Navy in leveraging economic power against these countries in these situations. Also, how difficult is it for the U.S. now to uh, project its forces around the world, given modern technology in these other countries as well? Well, day-to-day, it's not hard. Day-to-day, the U.S. Navy, of course, is fantastic at it. And, you know, it's a pretty big act to try to get in the way of a U.S. Navy ship, or certainly to shoot at it. And so countries don't tend to do that in peacetime or even in crises. And most of the adversaries we've been fighting for the last 20, 30, 40, 50 years don't have the capability either. So it would be a whole different proposition to then go to war against Russia or China near their coasts. That's the category of conflict that I worry about, which does put big Navy assets, big Air Force airfields, and other such large, difficult-to-hide, immobile or slow kinds of capabilities at immense risk, especially in this era of modern precision strike weaponry and modern surveillance. There are certain steps we can try to take by having carriers move around, by jamming communications, by uh, perhaps interfering with the operations of satellites. But there are so many ways, so many sensors out there, so many ways in which information can be obtained and shared about the movements of large assets, especially when they're coming into fairly predictable locations near Chinese or Russian borders. So it's that category of conflict where I really want to avoid having us 
with the need to escalate to major conflict. Also, when you start having a major conflict near the border of Russia or China, that's when they may get most nervous about their own regime survival and therefore consider escalating to nuclear weapons usage. So for a whole range of reasons, these are not scenarios we should want to engage in lightly. I'm sure nobody would engage in them lightly. I'm just trying to make it even harder, even less likely, and provide good alternatives that allow resolute response uh, without, you know, having to fire uh, lethal ordnance at Russia or China. In the Senkaku paradox, you mentioned that American military leaders and national security tend to believe that there is a realistic and essential goal of defeating China or Russia in combat. Do you think that perhaps there needs to be a rethinking of future dealings with China and Russia on the military battlefield? Well, I think that for some scenarios, we would like to establish and well, maintain preeminence, and we should be capable of defeating them in battle because, you know, if it's our major allies who are at stake and we have methods by which we can protect them, I think we should, and I think we should be willing to fight for, you know, the 130 million Japanese who live on the main islands of Japan. So I'm trying to distinguish between that set of scenarios where I think there is really no room for wavering in our commitment, and then these scenarios where there is a much smaller provocation or aggression that just doesn't really seem to rise to the level of necessitating a lethal response against a nuclear-armed superpower like Russia or China. So, yeah, I do want to keep preeminence against them. And, yes, I do want to keep the ability to win some conventional fights against them. Let's say, for example, if China tried to invade the main islands of Japan, I would want to help Japan fight that to the death and stop it, you know. And, and then China has the option of escalating to nuclear weapons use, I suppose. But China was also in this scenario the aggressor against the major population centers of a U.S. ally. To me, that's different, and that's one where we do have to be completely resolute. But barren rocks in the East China Sea, that's a different kettle of fish. You also peer into your crystal ball and consider what the U.S. would be dealing with in 2040 with Russia and China based off of economic modeling for GDP and military spending. Doesn't sound like any of the scenarios would be more appealing at that time. Right. They would get worse, I think, because in the next 20 years, we might get some kinds of weapons like, let's say, directed energy laser weapons that mitigate certain vulnerabilities. But I believe the proliferation of robotics, of advanced centers, uh, excuse me, advanced sensors of largely autonomous sensors, small satellites, uh, ongoing cyber vulnerability, and then the advent of artificial intelligence, all of these things taken together will make it increasingly hard for large, big objects that are vulnerable to attack to approach the shores of a major adversary that has many different ways of detecting the movements of such assets, especially when you're in their geographic home field, so to speak. And so it's largely hypersonic weapons and missiles, robotics, satellites, uh, artificial intelligence, these kinds of important trends in technology and weapons, I believe will help everybody but they will help even more the country that's fighting near its own shores. So all the more reason we should want to be asymmetric and all the more reason we should want to avoid getting into that war in the first place if we can possibly use our economic leverage against Russia or China. By the way, over the next 20 years, in terms of the economic trends, as I'm sure uh, you realize and all of your listeners too, of course, China is expected to keep growing and perhaps to even overtake the United States in overall gross domestic product. 
But China's still going to need to sell a lot of goods to uh, the million, excuse me, the billion rich Western consumers uh, who drive its economic growth in many ways, and it's still going to need oil and other assets from faraway lands, which continue to make China vulnerable to either economic boycotts and or naval operations that interrupt the movement of supplies in these uh, sea lanes. So for that reason, I think the strategy holds up pretty well over the next 20 plus years, even as China gets richer and bigger. Let's certainly hope that China and Russia focus on building their economies rather than provoking the U.S. into a major conflict. Michael, thank you very much for taking the time to speak with me today. Jason, thank you very much. I appreciate it. We've been speaking with Michael O'Hanlon about his new book, The Senkaku Paradox, Risking Great Power War Over Limited Stakes. Thanks for listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks. Till next time. The Crisis Next Door with host Jason Brooks is produced weekly. If you have any thoughts for Jason, email him at tcndpodcast at kcbsradio.com. Again, that's tcndpodcast at kcbsradio.com. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.